I want to say thank you to those who uh, either after the service or during the week contacted me to talk a little bit more about uh, last week's message and uh, just the difficult issue of dealing with what Jesus taught on divorce, what the Bible teaches about divorce and marriage. Um, I always welcome any type of feedback. Um, I, I, I want to do my best to represent God's word and to convey it to you with complete integrity and openness. If I've missed something, then please bring it to my attention. Or if you want to talk further about something, please come. I'm more than willing to have a conversation. Um, so again, thank you for your feedback. Um, last week, I, I argued for us to seek God's perspective in scripture and for us then to note how our perspective differs and then for us to aim to conform our perspective more to his perspective, to see things more how he sees them. And this morning, uh, we have the opportunity to witness a real life example of Jesus attempting to facilitate this process of perspective moving in a young man's life. If there was such a thing as a, a goodness scale, uh, ranging from zero being the worst person alive all the way up to 10 being the most righteous, the, the most perfect, best person alive, uh, where would you put yourself on that scale? That's really a difficult question, right? I'm sure there's probably not any of us that would say we're, we're a 10, although maybe perhaps on a job resume or application, we, we might try to perceive ourselves, uh, portray ourselves as being a 10. Um, and, and I don't think any of us would rate ourselves as a zero either, although maybe we're thinking of somebody we might know or somebody throughout world history that we could maybe rate close to zero. Uh, as being one of the worst people. Uh, in Matthew 19, uh, also recorded in Mark and Luke's accounts, we have recorded the account of a young man who approached Jesus who thought he had scored a pretty good evaluation on this goodness scale. Uh, and he was really drawn to this idea of eternal life. And as a result of his interest, he, Jesus, and the disciples all had a pretty good conversation on the subject of goodness and eternal life. Before even reading the passage, uh, skim with me from verse 16 and notice all the different words and phrases contained in the passage referring to eternal life. Uh, verse 16, he says, obtain eternal life. Um, 17, Jesus says, enter into life. Um, verse 21, treasure in heaven. 23, enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, the kingdom of God. 25, saved. Verse 29, inherit eternal life. All these phrases, all these words are referring to the, the same idea. Um, they're interchangeable. We're talking about the same thing here, being saved from death and entering into eternal life in God's kingdom of heaven. And like many today, the, the young man in this passage had the idea that good people are the, the people worthy of receiving such life. But as we see, his conception of goodness was wrong. Throughout history, mankind has had a tendency towards a false conception of what is truly good uh, and what it takes to receive eternal life. Let's read the first segment of the passage that outlines for us the misconception of what mankind calls good. Verse 16, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. 
Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. One common misconception that that mankind has had is a tendency to believe that there is something good you must do in order to enter into eternal life. Uh, There must be some great acts, some uh, ceremonious holy rituals, um, some good offering that will suffice in order to gain access into heaven. For the Muslim, it's uh, five good things. It's uh, stating out loud that God is one and Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, Two, it's uh, praying five times a day. Three, it's giving to the poor. It's fasting during the month of Ramadan and then making a pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, Hindus have a choice of three. Uh, They can choose to really specialize in good works. They can specialize in gaining great knowledge or they can specialize in being highly devoted. Uh, For Buddhists, their good work that will bring them into nirvana is to understand suffering and how to end suffering in the world. In modern Judaism, many no longer believe in an afterlife. But for the Orthodox Jew, the path to heaven is through good works and prayer. Uh, For the Jews during Jesus' time, uh, the good things necessary for obtaining forgiveness and eternal life were understood as, number one, first being a Jew, Number two, following the law of Moses given by God. Uh, Three, yearly sacrifices of animals. And Jesus seems to be presenting a new teaching about the kingdom of heaven revolving around belief and repentance. And this man wanted to understand, come on Jesus, uh, really what do I need to do to obtain eternal life? Jesus directly answered the man's question, but his answer, as so often happened, uh, passed over everybody's head. Uh, Look at his answer again in verse 17. He says, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. In other words, Jesus is saying, "What what is it that you really believe about goodness? Because only God is good. Uh, Mankind can't even come close to good. And only God properly understands goodness. So in asking me on goodness, are you claiming belief that that I, Jesus, am God and thus equipped to properly speak on goodness? In this response, Jesus hit the nail on the head. Uh, In order to obtain eternal life, there isn't enough goodness that one can do because only God is good. In order to obtain eternal life, one has to properly understand Jesus' relationship to God and trust in his goodness. He continues, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Okay, so only God is good. He's the only one who can score a a 10 on the goodness scale that we spoke about. But in theory, if if one could keep all the commandments of God, uh, they would gain access into eternal life. God would be happy to give them a 10 on the goodness scale if they could keep all the commandments. And you see, you, you need to score a 10 on the goodness scale in order to enter into heaven. God scores a 10, and he's not going to be tainted by hanging out with people who score less than a 10. At this point, um, more than likely, the man realizes that he probably hasn't kept 
all the commandments. Uh, so he's hoping Jesus could narrow it down just a little. Uh, what are the main ones, Jesus? And look again at Jesus' reply in verses 18 and 19. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is interesting. Um, many of you might recognize that most of these commands are taken from the Ten Commandments, but it's obviously not all ten, and they're not all in order, and there's one stated that is outside of the Ten Commandments, yet it's still within the law of Moses. Um, I believe Jesus was very particular about every word he spoke, and this passage is no different. Uh, we've stated that this man had a misconception of what is good, and Jesus knew this before he even engaged in conversation with him. Uh, but the rest of us are clued in to his misconception, not only by Jesus' reply in verse 17, speaking on goodness, but also in the man's reply back in verse 20, when he says, all these things I have kept. Uh, I believe the way Jesus listed these specific commands was an attempt to discreetly progress the man from the perspective of, yep, I've kept all those commands, to, well, I've mostly kept those, to, well, I'm, might not be keeping that one perfectly. Look at the progression with me. The first is, you shall not commit murder. Uh, Jesus skips over the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments, the first half that mostly deal with mankind's relationship to God, and he starts with the sixth commandment, a commandment that most people have probably been able to keep. Uh, it's also perhaps the one commandment that is maybe the easiest to identify on the outside if someone has really kept it or not. I mean, if you've, if you've murdered someone, it's usually only a matter of time before someone finds out and you're punished as a murderer. Then he proceeds in order to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, the sin of adultery is one that is usually still eventually found out, but perhaps could occur in more forms hidden. And moving the progression along, Jesus states the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And now murder was probably the least common sin, easiest to avoid, then followed by adultery, now following by stealing. Uh, stealing would be a little more common and would definitely be a wrongful option for one desiring to, to prosper. Uh, though it was definitely a wrong and a punishable crime, it would seem a little less heavy than murder or adultery. The ninth, then Jesus moves on to the ninth commandment. He says, you shall not bear false witness. Uh, the sin of lying, in contrast to murder, would definitely seem to be a little lighter of an infringement on the law, and also lighter than stealing, and would be a sin more often easy to justify, one that would perhaps be a little easier also to commit. And now Jesus jumps back to a commandment from the first half, commandment number five. He says, honor your father and mother. Now that commandment is just a little more vague and could be a little harder to identify as opposed to uh, murder or adultery. And then on, lastly, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, Jesus finishes with a command outside of the more well-known Ten Commandments. He, he ends with a command that's tucked away in a long list of various laws written in Leviticus. A command that comes just before the commands of, you shall not breed together two kinds of cattle, you shall not sow in your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. The command right before those three commands is the command that Jesus ends his answer with. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, 
I don't want to make light of God's law given through Moses, but love your neighbor as yourself. Don't breed two kinds of cattle together. Don't plant two different crops. Don't wear a polyester cotton blend shirt. All seem pretty insignificant on the spectrum when compared to you shall not commit murder. But I think that was the point. From the heaviest command to avoid the gravest of offenses, all the way up to the most minuscule, seemingly insignificant law, somewhere in the spectrum, we have all missed the mark. And the heavier commands are a little easier for most to obey, but as we get down to the smaller, seemingly less significant commands, perhaps these smaller ones are a little more difficult to obey. Uh, the big, heavy commands are easier to judge if someone is actually obeying them on the outside, but as we get to the seemingly lesser commands, it's probably a little harder to judge on the outside if someone is obeying them to the fullest extent. In this progression, Jesus is perhaps hoping the, for the man to evaluate his own goodness a little more honestly. Uh, sure, he hadn't committed murder, and he and everyone else probably knew that, but did he and everyone else believe that he had been loving his neighbor as he had been loving himself? That might be a little harder to judge. Had he always honored his father and mother? Back it up even further. Had he always spoken and acted 100% in honesty? Well, he must have thought so, or at least wanted to give that appearance by his answer in verse 20, all these things I have kept. Jesus knows he doesn't see it or perhaps that he's not admitting it. So Jesus then offered a new personal commandment uh, just for him, one not recorded in any requirement of the law, uh, one nowhere found in the spectrum of heavy to, to light laws. He commands, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And then he followed that up with the second command, perhaps the hardest of all, yet one that would enable him to be justified in every area of the law. Follow me. In saying this, the young man had opportunity to answer Jesus' question from verse 17. Well, why are you asking me about what is good? If the young man believed Jesus was good, if he would then have to believe that Jesus was God. Uh, if he believed Jesus was God and was good, then he would surely obey any command given to him by God in order to obtain the eternal life that he sought. But his actions proved he didn't either believe that Jesus was good or didn't believe that Jesus was God or that he wasn't really as serious as he thought he was in being a command follower or perhaps that he wasn't really as serious about eternal life as he had betrayed himself to be. You know, it's unlikely, but perhaps this young rich man had, had actually wholeheartedly followed all the commands Jesus had mentioned and more. But there is obviously at least one area in his life where he was unwilling to surrender and be obedient. We have to ask ourselves the same question. Are there any one areas in our own lives? Uh, are there any areas in our lives where we've said, uh, no, I I'm unwilling to let you work in this area, Jesus, but uh, I'll obey you every other place except for in this one thing. Verse 22 reinforces the idea that, that wealth was this man's one area, at least in this moment, that would keep him from following and obeying Jesus. I hope that later in his grief he repented and, and broke the hold of wealth on his life. 
Jesus then explains to his disciples the failure of what mankind calls good. In verse 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, Jesus could have said how hard it is for an angry person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Based on what he had said on the Sermon of the Mount relating the, to the sixth commandment of murder, where he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty. Uh, Jesus could have said how hard it is for a, a lustful person to enter into the kingdom of heaven based on what he had said relating to the seventh commandment forbidding adultery where he said but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He could have said how hard it is for someone with neighbors to enter the kingdom of God uh, because it's hard to love your neighbor as yourself. That's a hard one to keep consistently. Jesus' disciples, though, they probably didn't have to think of all these possibilities. Uh, they already felt the weight of what Jesus had said uh, concerning rich people, since realistically speaking, that included most everyone of the day. Uh, no, not everyone was rich, but most everyone, no matter what level of finances they were at, were probably striving to at least get a little richer. And if the, the blessed rich people have extreme difficulty getting into heaven, then what hope is there for the poor? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now there have been some who have attempted to explain the, that the eye of the needle is referring to a, a low and a narrow gate in the walls of Jerusalem. And there are others who have rendered the, the Greek word for, for camel as really being the a misprint for the Greek word cable, which is similar in spelling in Greek. Uh, either distortion would lend to a, uh, the, would lend the illustration being slightly more forgiving and more possible. Obviously threading a cable through the eye of a needle would, would be difficult, but it'd be a lot more possible than getting a whole big camel through the eye of a needle. And getting a, a camel through a low and narrow opening in a gate would be a difficult task, but it's a little more possible than thinking about a camel through the eye of a needle. But it looks like the disciples took Jesus' statement as a hyperbole. Uh, they seem to take it at face value as the Jewish way of saying something is completely impossible. Verse 25 says that they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? They realized that Jesus was implying that heaven was impossible for a rich man. Jesus confirms this, that he wasn't talking about difficult, he wasn't talking about small uh, gates or, or cable, but rather he was talking about the impossible, a camel and the eye of a needle. Look again at what he says in, in verse 26. With people, this is impossible. You know, this is Jesus' whole point from the beginning of the conversation. Only God is good, and it is impossible for anyone else to be good. It is impossible for anyone to completely fulfill all of God's laws and requirements. 
The way to eternal life is by fulfilling all the law, the major, heavy, and the minor, lesser laws. But the path is humanly impossible. So what's the real answer? If the law is the way, but it's impossible, how does one inherit eternal life? Jesus gave the answer in verse 21. He's telling the man to surrender all and follow him. For this young man, full surrender meant ridding himself of his wealth. Jesus demands surrender and that we follow him. This is the good that you can do. Surrender and follow. Any attempt at goodness outside of complete surrender and following him will fail. It's not real goodness. It won't lead you to eternal life. Doing good, going to church, reading your Bible, being kind, being baptized, giving to the needy, needy, As good as those things are, they will not give you a 10 on the goodness scale. And again, you need a 10 on the goodness scale in order to enter heaven. The only way that you and I can score a 10 on the goodness scale is through complete surrender and following him. It's admitting to God that he alone is good, that that we have missed the mark and that we are not good, nor ever will be, and our hope is only in him Our hope is that he would apply to our goodness scale, to our goodness scale report, the same markings that he gave to Jesus, a perfect 10 out of 10. In the last few verses, we see that there will be a reversal of what mankind calls good. Verse 27, and Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me and the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, this whole entire passage is talking about the misconception and failure of mankind's goodness that will actually lead to something bad, exclusion from God's kingdom. But it also outlines what is true goodness that thus leads to something really good, entrance into God's kingdom. But sometimes that true goodness, surrendering and following Jesus to the world, it looks bad. Uh, It didn't look good to others that the disciples had lost their careers, were poor, and were wasting their time following Jesus. But Jesus says the roles will be reversed. To his disciples, he says, yes, Peter, the loss you are experiencing appears to be bad to you and the rest of your countrymen. You appear to be the lowliest of low, uh, with the least amount of wealth, power, and authority, But one day the roles will be reversed and you will be honored among the great, leading and judging with great influence, power and authority, the nation of Israel. And this verse 29 then is for the rest of us. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Anything good that you surrender to the Lord in order to follow him and to to gain eternal life, you are promised to gain many times over that good which you gave up. Verse 30 
He gives us the same idea, but many who are first will be last and the last first. There are those who are first now that uh, they're receiving good things and, and good times, but they'll end up being last. Those good things and good times will be taken away. And then there are others who seem to be in, the, in this life, uh, they seem to be last, uh, that aren't getting the good things and good times. And no, it's been difficult and, and they have given up much and they have sacrificed much. And Jesus says one day those will be first. They will one day be the ones that will receive the good things and the good times. The ones being honored and celebrated. A great reversal of goodness is coming. Jesus' teaching on, on goodness, it, it wasn't a new concept. It wasn't a new teaching. Long before Jesus walked on earth, God's prophet Isaiah said, as recorded in Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of us. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. But what Jesus did, just a few months later after this teaching on goodness, by dying on the cross and raising himself back to life, completed the teaching. We weren't just left to deal with the impossibility of inheriting eternal life. We weren't left doomed in the state of our righteousness being as filthy rags. He did what we couldn't do by living a perfect life, scoring a, a 10 on the goodness scale. And he now invites us to surrender to him and follow him so that our score counts as his score. If you've never agreed with God that only he is good and have yet to surrender all and follow Jesus to receive his goodness, then I encourage you to do so. Admit that you missed the mark. Ask for his forgiveness and release anything that you're holding on to that would keep you from following Jesus. Don't be like the, the young man who went away grieving. Choose today to enter into true life, true goodness, and join the others that are waiting for his, the goodness of God's kingdom. And for those of us who have already made that commitment to Jesus, I want to warn you that we can still be tempted to slip back into thinking that our goodness somehow amounts to something. We can miss out on his goodness because we're relying on our goodness and that's not good. May this passage humble us, reminding us of God's pleasure, not in our attempts at goodness, but his pleasure in our surrendering all to follow Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for this passage and I thank you that it really can take a lot of pressure off of us. Lord, we want to do right and we want to please you, but there's a little bit of relief knowing that you are already pleased with us. And not because of our goodness, but because of your goodness. And we when we claim Jesus in our lives, you see his goodness and not our badness. Lord, I pray that that would encourage us, that that would give us rest in you. But Lord, you do require this one thing of us, to surrender anything that's holding us back from following you wholeheartedly and to follow you 
with all our heart. Lord, I pray that if there's anything in our lives that are keeping us from surrendering fully to you, that you'd bring it to our minds even right now. Lord, there could be a great work that you want to do in us and around us and through us. And maybe that one thing is preventing us from experiencing all of your goodness and blessing in our lives. Maybe we're holding back your hand from moving because there's one little area in our life that we're refusing to surrender completely to you in. Lord, I ask that right now you would search our hearts, that you would know us and see us and look and see if there's any iniquity in our hearts that any way that, that we're not surrendering to you, give us the strength to commit that to you and to say from this day forward, I'm surrendering that completely to you, Lord Jesus. I'm placing it in your hand. I've held on to it too long and I give all of me to you And I'm asking that you would help me to follow you wholeheartedly with complete abandonment to anything in this world. Lord, I pray that we would experience your blessings like we never have before. We'd experience your presence, your power, that we'd hear from you in ways like we've never experienced before. Lord, we ask that you would do this powerful thing through the power of the Lord Jesus in our midst, even right now. Lord, thank you for this sweet family. Thank you for the the gift of your word. Thank you for the, the joy in being able to gather together and encourage each other and praise you and learn from your word. Continue to teach us and guide us as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.